0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Well Office podcast. Today, we're discussing money. Yep, mula, tamales, coin, loot, dough. The words are endless to describe our colorful bills. I'm Dr. Namta Gupta, the Assistant Dean for Medical Students here at McGill's Well Office. And with me today is Dr. Kirsten Linder-Cheffier and Elizabeth Lefebvre, our career advisor. I want to talk to you a little bit about Dr. Linder. She's got a very keen interest in wealth optimization for physicians, kind of grew out of her own financial journey with what I understand is many missed opportunities, and we're certainly going to talk about those, as well as wrong turns along the way. Having learned the basics of financial management later in life, she is now passionate about sharing her own experiences and knowledge with fellow physicians at all stages of career to help them become empowered and avoid the mistakes that she once made. She's involved in financial literacy development for medical students, for residents, and she is a contributing speaker at many literacy events. Full disclosure, Dr. Linder is also the co-founder of a Physicians Wealth Advisory, and that is a financial planning and wealth management firm focused solely on serving the needs of physicians. Hi Dr. Linder, how are you?
1: Hello, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on
0: today. Oh, welcome. We're so happy to have you. So I kind of started off with your bio, which tells us that you are actually an expert in the field. But from our conversations in the past, I'm not sure if you felt like an expert from the onset. Could you please tell us a little bit about your experience as a health professional, both as a learner and now as staff and why you think it's important to share your story with learners?
1: Sure. Well, uh, thank you very much for that introduction. I don't know that I'm an actual expert, but I feel like I'm certainly much more informed than I ever was. And uh, I do talk a lot about financial literacy with learners, as you mentioned, and physicians. Uh, And so with that, I think My knowledge base has expanded a lot, and of course, my experience in helping physicians professionally with financial planning from a consultancy perspective has also helped. Um, For me, starting out as a medical learner, my primary focus really was learning medicine. Um, I was really excited to start the journey, and quite frankly, the financial side of it wasn't even in my consciousness. I grew up in a family where we didn't really talk very much about money.
0: And um, you're not the only one. <laughs> I can say that right all. off the bat.
1: Yeah, my my grandparents were immigrants to the country and they were very hard workers and managed to become quite successful through that hard work and penny pinching for the number of years that they were in Canada. And so I learned that you work hard and you save your money as best as you can. What I also identified at that time was that they really didn't seem to be enjoying life uh, to this <laughs> <laughs> and So, you know, in their later years, I think they became more comfortable with that. And, you know, they, they went to Florida and they started to have vacations, but really throughout their working lives, their whole lives were about work. So there was that sort of tension that I saw. And, you know, I think being young and impressionable, seeing things and having experiences became appealing. And, you know, you want to see all of that for yourself um at one point my parents divorced and so i then experienced a very contracted lifestyle as a consequence of that living with my mother and um it was a challenge to survive financially. And so I think because of that whole experience, I sort of saw how devastating it can be to, to not have money to spend. And then I also saw how appealing it is to see what it is to spend money. And so all of those experiences kind of shaped my perspective on money, I think, moving forward. Um And
0: all of that happened in a bubble of people not talking about money, if I understand you correctly. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So as a consequence of that, I think I became like every, I think most people after extended period of time Studying, feeling the self sacrifice involved in studying and the delayed gratification involved in that. Um, and also seeing other people, other friends who had chosen different career paths and had been working and earning and spending. I think by the time I got to the end of my residency, I was really tired of not having a lot of money. And so when I suddenly had a lot of money coming into my bank account, it was a little bit hard to resist. Mm, I and bet. I. And yeah. I think
0: that's the experience for a lot of people. Can I ask yeah. you a question? Yeah.
2: Did you have a, a first big splurge? Did you buy yourself something nice?
0: Oh, I did. What was, <laughs> what did you, what was your first? Big <laughs> you don't have to share it, but we would we, we are. <laughs> if you want to share it. it.
1: Oh yeah. No, as soon as I could, there were several things that I bought actually. Um, so the first thing that I did was I went out and I got myself a nice car. Oh. I was really excited to do that. I my first car ever was a Chevy Malibu, like a oh. 1989 Chevy Malibu from my I grew up
2: in that car. car. I literally oh grew up, up in a Malibu. I mean, uh.
1: it, it, it was two-tone blue. Nice. <laughs> nice. And so I was ready to move on from that. Um and so I bought myself a silver Honda Accord coupe. Nice
0: and i was still practical though that's not that's not crazy that's practical
1: remember i had a i had my mother's voice in my ear you know somewhere back there so i was really excited to have my version of a sports car and i was in significant debt i should note by that point so i think again you know i I was still aware of the fact that you know finances mattered Mm. um but I, I just wasn't so unfortunately aware enough as i as i continued the journey but then the other thing i did was i splurged on my wardrobe and i just wanted to i just wanted to experience what it was like to walk into Holt Renfrew and just buy anything i wanted for me that was sort of the pinnacle of making it you know I had worked so hard I had finally achieved my goal now I could walk into a store and without worrying about it
0: I could buy what I wanted right and it felt good and the subtext there <laughs> is that you're really not paying off your debt, I guess, at this point. Are you are you sort of like, I mean, the thing it, it, with studying any kind of health professional degree is it takes time. And you're usually doing that when the rest of your friends in other professions are starting to work and starting to accumulate wealth, and we're still studying. So we get out, and we've already delayed quite a bit of gratification. And so we get out, and we kind of go, know, we've got cash, we've got like, and we sort of keep thinking about the fact that everybody always tells us we can pay off our debts later. Would you say that all of this kind of made you go deeper into debt, or were you at the same time paying off some of the student debt or the personal line of credits that you had tapped into?
1: Yeah, so I wouldn't, I was not going into more debt. I had too much of an ingrained philosophy, I think in my you know brain from years of watching frugalness
2: yeah.
1: that I, I didn't feel comfortable not paying attention to it at all. But I, what I will say is that that debt that I was carrying was not being attended to. Mm-hmm. And mainly because I don't think I really understood the consequences of that. I, I wasn't thinking about the fact that, you know, debt compounds and that debt grows. And if you don't pay attention to it,
2: it can get out of control really, really quickly. Kirsten, can I, just on the topic of debt, sometimes when I talk to students in my office, they, we discuss a little bit about debt and going to see student aid and things and there can be debt from anywhere from a few thousand dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars. How, how much was your debt and how do you get into debt as a health professional learner? What are the ways that you get into mm-hmm. debt as a learner? So
1: to answer your first question, I had about $100,000 of debt. And that's not uncommon, um, as I understand.
2: No, it's not, not uncommon, no. And uncommon. I'd
1: say from my own experience in, in chatting with residents and newly practicing physicians, 100000 to 200000 nowadays is actually the average. Yeah. It's not uncommon to meet it people who have more than $200,000 of debt. And I think that happens for a variety of reasons. Obviously, a good portion of that debt is educational debt, which is actually good debt, debt that has led to you earning the ability to earn money. It's debt that needs to be dealt with and paid down. But at least you know that that debt led to you being able to, to make that money to pay it down. Um, I think where many of us go off the path, and this certainly happened to me as well, is, you know, there's a lot of other temptations that exist. And, you know, there's no end to the number of ways that you can spend money. And especially now with banks being very willing to give quite substantial sums of money to learners on credit,
0: mm-hmm. primarily through lines of credit. Um, I remember walking into a bank and one of the guys telling me right to my face, you are human capital. <laughs> you can really? like, So right away, you're, you are human capital and you could have $100,000 in a personal line of credit tomorrow. Wow! Yeah. And so you're right, right? Like We get offered and solicited a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. So it is easy to fall into debt.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, in particular, with those lines of credit, the way that it was set up in my bank account is it actually looked like it was my money. Mm. So, it's sitting there as a line item. You know, when I look at my accounts and there's sitting my line of credit, and, you know, maybe I went out to too many dinners that month. Maybe I spent on a few too many things. Well, I'll just transfer another thousand over from that line of credit into my bank account. And so, you know, the thousand then becomes 10,000, then becomes, 30,000 and so on and so forth. And, you know, you start accumulating this level of debt that you, you didn't even really think about. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's sort of, you know, one of the other really important things to talk about is just Becoming mindful about money, and that's why I wrote that article that I wrote about money mindfulness, because I think that's really where we all falter at the very beginning, is there's a lack of awareness and a lack of mindfulness about what to do with the money that we eventually will earn, and even prior to that, what to do with minimizing the amount of money that we're spending, because that ultimately has quite significant consequences for how we move forward when we actually do start earning money.
0: That's such a great segue into the question that I have and, you know, around like value systems, you know, what makes the world go around? Money or love? It's sort of that, you know, chicken or egg question. Mm -hmm. And I think most health professionals are kind of trained to be very altruistic, right? Mm -hmm. So we're kind of trained... sort of say don't think about the money Um, you're here you're a physician or you're a nurse you're in in it for the helping for the advocacy piece and that is all true but it does make a lot of us very uncomfortable talking about money Mm -hmm. and, and sort of I imagine that the culture that you had growing up with as you described it was kind of maintained in medicine where nobody really talks about money. So I guess my question is really around value systems and Mm -hmm. money. Like how do you incorporate your value system into some of the financial decisions that you've made? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you think about the concept of lifestyle as it relates to quality of life versus Mm -hmm. being a threat to your own financial Mm well-being?
1: Well, I would say, and you know, based on what I've shared already about my experience with money growing up, I have a bit of an internal conflict about money because I, I appreciate the importance of saving money, but I also very much appreciate the finer things in life and being able to enjoy the fruits of your labor. And so I would say for me, it took quite a lot of self-reflection to kind of think about how I wanted to live my life, what was mm-hmm. important to me, and where my priorities were. And I think this is an important exercise for everybody to go through.
0: Yeah, this yeah. How do you want to have, have financial wellness, but mm-hmm. at the same time, have it in line with your value system and your priorities?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I think it, it really comes down to quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, quality of life now, and also quality of life in retirement when we're no longer sure. earning money. And that's actually a really key piece too, because I think we often forget that there is this period of life, which is actually quite extended in some cases, you know, so many people live in retirement for 20 to 30 years, almost mm-hmm. as long as their earning career.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: so th- there has to be some way that you can sustain yourself
0: within that period as well. Such an important point, because I don't think a lot of students or residents and maybe uh, we don't get pensions. That's right. right. There is no retirement pension. And I think that might be different for some of our other health professional students. But certainly for medical students and residents, they have to plan for retirement. So you're right. There's that. How do you want to live today now? And how do you want to live when your career is sort of winding down?
1: Exactly. And that's why it's so important to prioritize now and be aware of really where your priorities lie, because every dollar that you spend now is money that won't be available to you later when you retire. It's going to affect the age that you can retire at and how much money you'll have at your disposal on a yearly basis for the rest of your retirement.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, This might be a simplistic question, but... Is there a magic number for how much a person should try to put away based on the a percentage of their income or anything like this? Is there any any is there a magic number or is it really situational?
1: You know what? I there are lots of numbers that are put out there, but quite frankly, what I've seen is that there's a huge amount of variability because it's such a personal thing. You know, some people want to retire at the age of 40. Mm-hmm. Some people want to want to retire at the age of 65, but continue to work part-time. Mm-hmm. So all of these are all very specific considerations that will have a significant impact on how much you would actually require to retire. And so this is why having a financial plan is really the center point of being secure financially because Mm -hmm. it acts as a roadmap for you considering all of your own personal priorities. Uh, your financial goals, that's a, you know, another really important thing to talk about is financial goals. That's really what drives all financial decision making. And so to have that plan available to you to act as a roadmap towards all of those goals is really the only way to know how much you have to be saving on a monthly yearly basis to achieve, you know, that end point that you're striving towards.
0: And I guess it's, a, it seems to me a good Time to sort of think about those long-term plans and the ways that they can even get derailed. You know, um, money camp I love, and my personal experience with money and relationships has been nothing short of financial tragedy. <laughs> but I'm happy <laughs> and I'm grateful. So, I mean, nobody ever gets married thinking about divorce, and yeah. I'm—I think that's one of the sort of the big financial things that can happen to people, and it sort of touches upon for me the ideas of. How can they actually protect themselves without being kind of paranoid or mercenary or seem unloving? I think mm-hmm. that physicians, nurses, everybody sort of in healthcare is often so altruistic that they might even not prepare in, in a way for what happens when some of the milestones occur, whether that be mm-hmm. marriage, divorce, kids going to college. Uh, retirement. And so we're touching about milestones. So I was wondering if you could sort of comment on some of the different milestones and what we need to think about throughout the lifespan, which, you know, we're so Mm -hmm. concentrated on either being a student or a parent or Mm -hmm. a partner, you know, do you think about money that way? Like in terms of milestones?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was one of the critical factors that led to me being relatively unprepared in the early stage of my career. Um, I was in a relationship where nobody was talking about money values at the outset. And then eventually it became a point of contention. And, you know, for me, I was the person who was being faced with making decisions about contracts and protecting the other person. And, you know, I think that these kind of conversations can be really challenging for relationships and can be quite destructive if they're not dealt with properly. And so I think, you know, it's really important for us to start becoming really honest with ourselves and with our partners about what money is and what it means to us. And also to consider how we allow money to manifest itself within our relationship. So I think money considerations are so interwoven in relationships. And I think it's it's really hard to separate the two sometimes. And I think sometimes people worry that talking about money means talking about love or they mistake one for the
0: other Mm -hmm. in some cases well and I'm just thinking that like sometimes that gets confused when you can't be present because Mm -hmm. you're working and we work such long Mm -hmm. hours and such and, and sometimes shift work and all of that that I can you know I can see how that might happen that you tend to compensate if you will with money or you don't want to have that discussion because it might be conflictual and there's already so much to discuss, you know, day to day, every day. Uh, Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Do you have a word on how to, how to approach money within a relationship? Is there, do you have a foolproof plan or a two-step process? (laughs)
1: Well, I would say I've lived it from both sides. So I've gone from not talking about money and then talking about money in a really adversarial kind of way in Mm -hmm. one relationship to having really open discussions about money from the get-go in Mm -hmm. my current relationship, which is with my husband and he's a financial advisor. And so I think for him talking about money was just sort of a natural thing to do Um, and you know honestly at the beginning i was a little bit taken aback because you know we started talking about money issues quite early on and i, I almost felt that that was intrusive mm-hmm. but what i would say now is that in hindsight having had those money discussions very early on actually opened the lines of communication and helped us understand each other and our values and i think that having compatible values around money is actually really important to a relationship
2: Sure. I was going to say, uh, isn't that why they in the popular culture say that the main things couples fight about is money? Because there's yeah. a different set of values around spending, spending and saving. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. But That's so that interesting, way. right? So I was actually going to say that as well. Like we yeah. talk about the things that couples fight about are children, family, money. And we talk about children, we talk about family. So it makes sense that we would talk about money too, you know, yeah. planning for it or planning yeah. ahead. Absolutely. And for me, it
1: was actually in discussing these issues around money that I came to realize how financially unoptimized I actually was. Mm -hmm. It brought money into my consciousness. Up until, you know, like that first 10 years of my career, I really wasn't talking to anybody all that much about money. I was spending quite a lot of money. I was in a relationship where probably the person I was with was worried about (laughs) where I was spending money, perhaps. And you know, that led to contention within the relationship as well. So in addressing money very early on in my current relationship, I was able to get a better sense of what my personal money values were. I was able to dive back into, you know, the things that we've already talked about in terms of my childhood and Mm -hmm. um, how that might've shaped my perspectives on money and saving and spending. Um, And then also in terms of what you envision for your life moving forward, if you're going to be spending your life with somebody, money is a pretty critical element of that. Every Mm -hmm. single thing you choose to do
0: has to do with money really at the end of the day. So again, I'm super curious, like, did you actually carve out like going for coffee and talking about money? Like, was it that framed?
1: Well, yeah, yeah, actually it did. It did become that. Um, It became, you know, casual conversations that probably my now husband was, increasingly alarmed <laughs> because <you> know, by <laughs> at, at that point, I'm lucky he even married me actually, even you know, this is the state of affairs at the time. And, you know, so he was kind of like, okay, let's take a look at this and let's just get this fixed. And so it started out with, you know, where is all the money coming from? Like, you know, I had money coming from here and there and, I didn't even really know what my monthly income was, to be frank. I just knew that I was getting money coming into my bank account every month. I didn't have any kind of dedicated savings strategy whatsoever. I had a corporation that I had established shortly after starting practice that was empty. I had no money in it. Uh, I was paying for it every single right. year
0: with yeah, paying, like my accountants
1: account. and taxes, yeah. accounting fee and all of that stuff. But I, I wasn't reaping the benefits of it. I had been putting money into RSPs because I actually mistakenly thought that maximizing my RSPs was all I needed to do. And that was a message that my grandparents gave me early on, just, you know, saving your RSP, the government helps you take advantage of this opportunity. So I did that thinking that's all I need to do. And now I. And it makes
0: you feel good, right? It's like, okay, did that, I can go, that's it. You know, that's all I need to do. Right. To to retire comfortably. That's really the popular sort of culture out there.
1: Yeah. And that's our so called pension, right? Like that is sort of what I was thinking of as my pension. And that's going to take care of me um, without really understanding that that wasn't the case. Right. And the biggest problem I had personally was that I didn't have a financial plan. So. Not moving from a financial plan in every single decision that I made, not having a budget, not knowing what my net worth was, not having any sense of what cash flow is, all of those things were significantly to my detriment. And had I started thinking about all those things within the first few years of practice, I would have been in a very different place 10 years ago than I was.
0: Right. Did you buy property? When did you have you bought property? Do you own property? When did you and, think and about so- that?
1: and that was not in my consciousness at well, all in, okay. in in the early days and what's really interesting is how my grandparents were able to become successful as immigrants in their 50s when they first moved to Canada was through scrimping and saving enough to be able to put a down payment on a house that they eventually opened up to borders. And every single room in that house was rented out to a border. And so I was very much exposed to real estate entrepreneurship. But for some reason, I just didn't think that it was something I should or could do.
2: Looking back, do you think you should have.
1: I do. I think that that was a missed opportunity, actually. I, you know, the thing that you don't realize, and they say youth is wasted on the young, I think is (laughs) something like that. I always get these that is wrong, but you don't realize the value of time, you know, so here I am in my 40s. And in my 20s, had I had the foresight and the courage to have kind of jumped into an endeavor of that sort, Um, I mean, I would have a lot more, a lot more saved, I would have had equity, I would have had a mortgage paid off, you know, say it was a student house, for example, and that opportunity was certainly available to me, I would have had other people paying off that asset. Real estate is not for everybody. And I'm not encouraging everybody to go out and buy a student house right now. But I think what the bigger message here is, is again, being mindful and thinking forward, to your future self, you know, your future self who is in their 40s, 50s and 60s and what you need to do between now and then to become financially secure. And maybe that just means, you know, scrolling away a certain amount of money every single month in an RSP, and then a TFSA or a corporation, if you have that, and thinking about how that will accumulate over the years. You know, for me, if I had saved 1,000 dollars, let's say, per month in my corporation for all the years that I didn't use it, I would have had an extra 130, 140,000 dollars. Huge. And th- that's without compounding, right? Like all of right. that time, that money would have compounded and probably been worth a lot more. Than, That's right. than that so and, and that would have you know just kind of come out of my bank account had I automated that to do that and I'm sure I spent that money on a whole lot of boots
0: <laughs> that yeah. are long gone now <laughs> but damn girl no. you looked good <laughs> were cute, <with> <laughs> yeah. so it's an interesting we have a couple of student questions and we're kind of touching upon it mm-hmm. Right now, so maybe I'll just ask, you know, I guess we have some learners who are well more versed in financial matters than I am, and they're thinking about the stock market. They're wondering about what proportion of their salary should go to the stock market, whether they should pay back their loans first or invest whether they should take money out of a line of credit to invest. And I know this is not for everybody, but I was just wondering if you want to talk a little bit now about interest rates being so low and the ability to actually borrow to invest versus paying down your mortgage, buying property. I mean, I know this is all very personal as well, but do you have a word for this student? wondering about the stock market.
1: I will say, you know, I'm not a financial advisor. And so anything that I'm saying is is really based on, you know, my experience and what I've learned along the way. What I will say is this, there's a few basic principles to consider. Um, the first is that, again, I you know, I, I've said it already, and I, I guess I'll say it again is, you know, a financial plan is really the best way to understand where you should be putting your money, because the mm-hmm. financial plan actually considers what your financial goals are. And it's, it's, you know, in trying to reach those goals that you have to make decisions about what to do with the money on a, a monthly basis as it comes into your bank account. So, I think that that's the first step. The second step is to have a plan for debt management. So, when you're talking about should I put my money towards debt payments versus savings, that question is so dependent on so many variables that are unique to each person's circumstance. You know, are you single? Are you married? Does your partner have a salary? Do you have dependents that you have to spend money on? What's your cash flow? Are you in a monthly deficit with your cash flow, uh, which many learners are, by the way, you know, most residents are just, you know, trying to keep above water until they finish their residency, especially those with families. Most people are mm-hmm. going into debt throughout their That's residency. Right. Yeah. And so deciding how you're going to allocate your money really depends on so many factors. Once you're making a lot more money, it becomes a lot easier to pay down debt and start saving. A common question that does come up is, you know, should I be taking advantage of opportunities now that I have like $300,000 of a line of credit? Should I just dump it all into the stock market like last March
0: when everything was was so (laughs) low?
1: (laughs) And I think, you know, the problem with that is that we now have the benefit of retrospect to know that the markets bounced back pretty quickly. We didn't know that that was going to happen at the beginning of that journey. And so what happens if a learner puts a good chunk of their line of credit into the stock market and it goes down? And it goes down over a persisting period of time. And then what happens if they need access to that line of credit? So I think it's a dangerous game to play when you're talking about using borrowed money to invest when you're a student and you're still very financially vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's simply because we just can't predict what the market is going to do. We have the benefit of hindsight. And if you look at the history of the stock market, it has always gone up over time. So there are dips in the market, there are rises in the market, and over time, the market generally has continued to climb. Um, but we don't know how long those periods
0: of dips and up uh, periods last for. And only so if you that if you much. might. Exactly. If you think you might need that money in the short term, then it would be a very risky endeavor. I guess Absolutely.
2: to yeah, you could find yourself owing a whole lot more than you originally would have owed.
1: Right. Yeah. Without the cash flow to be able to pay it, so then That's you right. potentially are in further debt.
0: Which kind of leads me to a, another question that one of our learners put, and I guess this is a medical student who's sort of uh, pondering the fact that everybody always tells them that they will make lots of money and that they shouldn't be concerned about their finances. And the student sort of is wondering about the fact that they're doing four years of medical school, three, five, six, seven years of residency before actually making a salary, a real salary. So and then I guess time off to have children or delays or illness or what have you. What do you think, Kirsten? Do you think being a doctor is really lucrative? And at what point would you say that it does become lucrative if you do think it is?
1: hmm. It's a really great question. And it relates to something that I call the wealthy physician fallacy.
0: Okay, I'm interested. You've got my am all ears. <laughs> so we
1: as physicians are very fortunate to have access to a fairly high income, we're part of the 1% of the population who makes quite a substantial amount of money. The problem is that most of us, many of us, And I think the tides are changing now a bit, but many of us don't know what to do with that money when we get that money uh, and often end up just spending it. And so that, that sort of brings us back to this concept of lifestyle. So while physicians have good earning potential, they don't necessarily have good wealth potential unless they are mindful about what to do with that money and they actually start saving. Because really at the end of the day, wealth is about net worth. And net worth is about assets and liabilities. And if you don't have any assets, any meaningful assets, if you're leasing your car and you have a huge mortgage that you're barely able to pay the payments on, and you're going on luxurious trips three times a year, and you're buying all the designer clothes and you've got all the gadgets at home, but you have zero in your bank account, you know, you're gonna have a hard time ever getting to retirement, because you won't have anything to support your retirement. And so, you know, I think that's where the tension lies, quite frankly, I think, is finding that balance between lifestyle and planning for the future. And again, it comes back to priorities and figuring
0: and even just I just thought of this now, just even the fact that we pay our taxes after the fact, Right. So I know so many people who get themselves into that loop of having to pay last year's taxes with this year's money. And so not really even incorporating the idea of taxes into your cash flow. Mm -hmm.
1: And even to take that a step further, oftentimes using their line of credit to
0: pay so off pay their taxes right. yes so going exactly going
1: further into debt to pay their taxes and i think that, that that's actually one of the tips i give newly practicing physicians is right off the bat when you see your ohip payment go into your bank account because you know physicians are a little bit unique in that they're essentially an independent business owner and so they're they're getting a whole lump of revenue into their bank account and they have a whole lot of expenses that need to come out of that lump of money uh, before any of the rest of it is, you know, can be spent personally. But very few of us are aware of that as we start our practice. So, Mm -hmm. you know, taxes are... perfect example and probably one of the most significant detriments to a newly practicing physician. And so saving half of what you receive into your bank account on a monthly basis when you start getting your OHIP payments and putting that aside into your tax savings account is the best thing that you can do to protect yourself from those kind of situations.
0: That's a great suggestion. And I'm aware that that question came from a medical student. So we've talked a little bit about physician finances, maybe we can broaden it out a little bit and just talk Mm -hmm. about money and trust. Mm -hmm. So we sort of alluded to the fact that we have institutions that solicit uh, us, Mm -hmm. you know, even I've got a couple of friends who are nurses, and especially right now during the pandemic, you know, they have stable jobs. And that is not like the many people in other populations and so they're being offered more uh, ability more sort of debt more loans more people are coming to them to sort of talk to them about how to invest their money where to invest their money how can we walk me through some of the elements on how to trust somebody with a financial plan how do we how do we approach the institutions Mm -hmm. that tend to solicit us Do you have to, do you ask, are there certain questions that you ask that will increase your trust with the various institutions that we deal with?
1: Mm -hmm. So I think the first step is to become familiar with the financial landscape and to understand what all the various options are first laid out in front of you. And that's where, again, financial literacy really comes into play and, you know, maximizing your understanding of finances in general and the landscape that we operate in. And to also note that up until recently, the financial industry was extremely unregulated. So anybody could sort of hang out a shingle and call themselves a financial advisor. All they had to do was complete a one-month course and... Mm-hmm securities and they could say that they were, you know, a so-called expert. And so the industry has identified that that's a weakness and they are moving towards much more stringent rules and regulations around being able to offer yourself as an expert and to guide clients. And also there's an increasing focus on what fiduciary financial care is. And fiduciary financial care means that Somebody is working with your best interests in mind. You're not just a sales call, so to speak, because the industry's also been very sales focused for many, many years. Right.
0: We all have those memories or those ideas of some guy with a cool little fedora wanting to <laughs> take 30%, you know, or accountants or, or financial advisors in Bermuda. You know, we have all yeah. heard those those stories. Yeah. So it is. Yeah. yeah,
1: they're drinking cocktails on their yacht while you were, you know, yeah. kind of slugging away here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so I think the first thing is to to figure out how do you find a fiduciary expert? And there's several designations that help with that distinction. First off, bank branch advisors have the least amount of regulation, and so.
2: Yeah. So as a student, the first person you'd think of is go talk to the bank. That's right.
1: Yeah. But banks are businesses. Right. So banks are looking to sell you products and they love it when health professional students come in because, like you said, they know that the health professions are amazing job security. They make good money and they're generally considered a favorable that so they're more than willing to share their resources with you at a premium because of course all of those things will have to be paid back so anything that's borrowed or loaned will have to be paid back at a premium and any investments that are made will have fees associated with them so finding the right person to work with is key Um, the designations to look for are cfp QAFP, these are two of the designations that have been identified by the financial planning standards to be fiduciary designations. CIM, which is a chartered investment manager, also has a fiduciary duty. And all of these designations are also regulated through IROC, so, which is basically the regulatory body similar to our regulatory bodies that have certain standards that the professionals that work within that framework have to adhere to.
0: Well, I did not know any of this. This is amazing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that would be the first place to start. Um, And then beyond that, I think trust involves familiarity. Um, So I think you want to make sure that you have somebody that understands you, understands your experience, understands the challenges that you may be facing and the opportunities that may be available to you. And so somebody who has clients that are similar to you, I think is always a benefit. And then beyond that, I think word of mouth is always very valuable. So Mm -hmm. working with somebody that somebody has worked with and has had a good experience with is also really important.
0: Mm -hmm. Great, those are awesome. And sometimes it's hard
1: to find. And in that case, I think that's where you have to rely on the broader landscape, doing your own research, and again, sort of being savvy enough to ask the right questions of somebody who might be unfamiliar to you.
0: Right, and, and we come back sort of full circle to the realization that so so few of us talk about money, mm-hmm. that uh, it really does mean an overhaul, like a cultural overhaul, a cultural change, if you will, and starting to actually, you know, discuss with our colleagues, our friends, our everybody, and and to really look at not so much making money, but really planning around the money that you make. And uh, I think that's so important. You know, we've hit kind of the end of the questions that I had for you, Kirsten. I don't know if there's something that we haven't touched upon that you really wanted to transmit.
1: You know, I think oh, this is something, I mean, we could talk for hours, really. We uh, could. I
0: feel like we could go for coffee. <laughs> we okay. could have that little preview.
1: Yeah. I know. Um, so I think, you know, for me, there are several important points that I want to highlight. The first is just financial literacy in general. Um, Mm -hmm. I highly encourage learners to start becoming ravenous consumers of financial information. It is hard to know where to go for this information. And quite frankly, I don't think there is one particular place to go for it because Mm -hmm. you will get different perspectives wherever you go. You know, I think you should have a variety of different resources available to you, you know, looking to your parents, looking to family and friends and seeing what they're doing, learning from their mistakes. Finding a trusted expert that you can rely on to bounce information off of and ask questions of and feel like you're getting reliable and valuable input from, and then You know, forums can also be a valuable resource also. The challenge with forums is oftentimes the conversations are occurring in a bit of a vacuum and don't always consider the larger landscape. But they're still valuable in learning other people's perspectives and learning from other people's experiences, identifying that they themselves may not be experts. So I think kind of going everywhere that you can to find as much information as you can and feeling okay about that. So for me, I didn't really realize the importance of doing that early on in my career. I didn't really feel that finances were appropriate to think about. I didn't feel like anybody else really wanted to talk about finances. And I think we now realize that that's not true. I think a lot of people really like to talk about finances. Mm -hmm. And that we're not alone in all of this and using each other
0: as supports, I think is really valuable. It's Um, interesting that the Facebook page, the Physician Financial Independence, there's a Facebook forum mm and it has maybe 20,000 members. I was Mm -hmm. so surprised. So you're right. There seems to be a, a changing of the landscape where people are a bit more open to actually not just talk, but even mentor. Uh, other physicians or other learners as well. And so I think that's very interesting. There is sort of this trickle happening this this yeah. way
1: there is rising consciousness and I think yep. that that is so important and valuable and again you know I think over time we'll probably see an expansion of that and y- considering multiple different perspectives and understanding that there isn't sort of a one size fits all kind mm-hmm. of solution here sure. some people are really DIY oriented meaning do it yourself some people are able to take that on they're interested they have the time to do it. And it's like a hobby, really, at the end of the Mm -hmm. day for that. So that's something that they're willing to take on and take on over the long run.
2: Sounds like it's difficult for someone to just dabble in to do a DIY, you know, financial planning, it sounds like it takes a lot of commitment.
1: Well, and I think that there's an important distinction that needs to be made because DIY really, I I think in its purest form, they talk about it as investing, do it yourself investing. And I think that has to be looked at distinctly from financial planning, because financial planning is quite a complex process that considers many different aspects of Uh, a person's financial situation and When discussions are occurring around, you know, like say somebody poses a question, what should I do about my situation? Here it is, you'll get 20 different opinions about what somebody should do. And oftentimes, those responses are very much colored by their own personal experience, because they're not necessarily experts that have had a breadth of experience in dealing with those kind of scenarios. So that's where I do think it's really important, again, to sort of have a financial plan to have that trusted person to work with to kind of help guide you uh, through all the noise, because it can become a little bit overwhelming when you're trying to DIY financial planning versus DIY investing. DIY investing has actually become quite easy to access and uncomplicated. And so there is, I think, especially for millennials and people who are comfortable with technology, there has been quite a significant shift towards that kind of money management But with that, there's also quite a shift in the financial world towards lower cost investment solutions, which I think, you know, fees are are something we haven't talked about at this point, but probably worth bringing up because fees can significantly erode your opportunity for financial success over time.
0: Right. Um, and when we talk about medical students and residents, and I'm sure th- I don't know if this was the case for you, but a lot of us growing up as medical students a long time ago had that, you know, classic uh, MD management person come to visit, you take the backpack, you know, and and that's where you invest And it, they, I think, marketed themselves on run by physicians, for physicians, and I think it's only now coming to light with this sort of trade over to Scotiabank and the fees associated. I think people are starting to wake up to the realization exactly that fees make such a big difference over time. And I I think that's what you were starting to talk about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that's where, you know, again, being an informed consumer will help you make good decisions about what's best for you you need financial literacy to be able to move towards being financially healthy. And it's basically the state that results from the way in which a person uses their finances. And so much like personal health, financial health is an active process and it's very interrelated with personal health. And most healthcare learners are starting off their career in significant debt. And so starting there and with an significant increase in earnings that happens at the same time there's a significant risk of going into further debt because of escalating expenses and with those escalating expenses there tends to be a tendency to work more in order to pay off all of those increasing expenses and in some cases you almost can't get there because you've already started uh, in the hole, so to speak. And what starts to happen there is that you start to enter into work-life imbalance. So you start sacrificing all of the other
0: personal things that are important to you. Even like holidays, like I cannot afford to be spending money at the same time that I'm not making any, right? You go on holiday and you actually... Yeah, you spend money while you're not making it. It's, it's, so it's a it's an interesting uh, process.
1: Here you are working more to pay the bills and the bills are coming from the expenses from all the things that you're wanting. Um, but what's happening is that you're actually propelling yourself into exhaustion by Trying to achieve all of those things, and so in fact, you're actually moving further away from quality of life than towards it. And what ultimately happens is a concept called burnout, and we're all very aware of burnout. And burnout is a very complex topic in and of itself, and very multifactorial. But certainly, I think financial ill health
0: has a very significant contribution towards exactly. And you know, if we do talk about ourselves as our educational intelligence. The, 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 we are our best instrument, right? Like a physician's best instrument is themselves. And if they don't take care of that engine, then, you know, pretty much all is lost. So I think that's really important to frame financial wellness uh, and burnout together, because I think it is a path that many people take without realizing that that's where they're heading yeah so you know what's
1: right for one person or one person at one stage of their life may be different across yeah. the board and so becoming aware of where your comfort level is and what you feel is achievable so that you don't lose opportunities and that you don't self sabotage is really important
0: so you know i want to thank you so much i think we've talked about a ton of issues and i'm really excited to actually hear the podcast. I really love the way that you've framed financial literacy and mindfulness, the way that you've married those two issues because often people think that they couldn't be further apart. But I think really what you're saying is that financial planning is mindful planning and it's actually a part of emotional well being. And really here at the Well Office, that's what we're interested in. We're really interested in trying to get to that little overlap of Venn diagram where you understand that your financial uh, wellness contributes overall to your wellness. Uh, So I wanna thank you so much, Kristen. It's been really fun chatting with you and uh, we might have to do a part two at some point. (laughs) We're really, really thankful that you made the time for us today.
1: It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.